0: Have you ever had someone try and get inside your head? If you've played sports, you know that sometimes the the opposing team will try to use little strategies to make you fearful or intimidated or make you think there is no way you can beat us. You may as well just go home. The military does this quite a bit. It's referred to as PSYOPs. That stands for psychological operations. And it's been around for a long, long time. There was a book that came out called Head Game. And the writer Tim Down said that this is an ancient strategy in the art of war to intimidate one's enemy. And the writer told a story about Alexander the Great when he and his army were being uh, run down and pursued. And they were in kind of a, a lengthy retreat. He gave his armorers an order He said, I want you to build armor that is way bigger than anybody can wear. Build armor as though it was for someone seven or eight feet tall and then litter it behind us as we're running away. And it worked. When the enemies were pursuing them and came across this armor, they thought, well, there's no way we want to fight these people. Look, they're twice the size as we are. And they were demoralized. And instead of fighting those giants, they thought it would be best if they just abandoned their pursuit. We have an enemy also that likes to play head games with us. His name is Satan. And he wants you to think that you are puny and small and that you should be afraid, demoralized, insecure, And sometimes we assume that he's bigger than he actually is. Now, he is a horrible enemy. In in John 10, 10, it says, The thief comes, this is Christ describing Satan, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But what did Jesus come to do? He said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus brings into this world scenes from heaven. And we are commanded to be joyous Christians. We see that in Thessalonians. I came across a quote from C.S. Lewis this week from his book, Surprised by Joy. And he said, joy is, listen to this, the serious business of heaven. It's something we often look at as a want-to, but the Bible says it's not a want-to, it's a have-to-have. And yet we have Satan prowling around, seeking whom he may devour. This morning I want to talk about how does Satan steal my joy? How do I keep Satan from stealing my joy? Because that's what he's out to do. And again, headed into this new year, we have to talk about this all-important subject of joy. We looked at those Jews, those Hebrews in Nehemiah 8, when the prophet Nehemiah looked at them and said the joy... Of the Lord is your strength. So we're doing this series right now called Fortified, fortifying our hearts with the joy of the Lord. And I was, I came across something else, a book called Faith for Exiles this past week. And these authors were talking about what is it that separates young people, for example, those who tend to stick with the faith and stay true to the core doctrines, and those who just seem like they drift off and walk away. And the one thing they noticed was this. That the resilient disciples, those people that stick with it, experience far greater joy and intimacy with Jesus. For them, walking with God is not a chore. It's a joy. It's a delight. So then I want to talk about these four temptations that we can give into. to. Four tactics of Satan. The thief working against us. So again, this morning, I want to... Uh, walk through four passages I'll be going through four different passages though all from the book of Philippians instead of standing we'll we'll read those as we as we get to them and the book of Philippians it speaks volumes about how to live the Christian life and Paul puts the word joy in the book of Philippians more per capita there than any other epistles only four chapters he mentions joy five times rejoicing many more times And his only other epistle that ties with that is 2 Corinthians, which is about 14 chapters. So joy is a theme of the book of Philippians. And keep in mind as we go through the passages that Paul is a prisoner as he's writing these things. It's one of his prison epistles. So remember, Paul is not living in favorable circumstances when he wrote this letter to the Philippians. But again, the believer's joy doesn't rest in our circumstances. The battle is in our head, it's in our hearts. So the first passage I want to look at, we'll start with First, uh, rather, Philippians 1. We'll find this first temptation, Philippians 1, verses 15 through 17. And we read there, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So again, Paul's sitting in a cell, and in the previous verses he explains that while he has been in prison, everyone knows in the prison that he's there on account of the gospel. The guards know that. That this man has been in prison because of the message that he is spur- spreading around and, and saying to people. And in the middle of this bad situation, he's rejoicing. And people, he says, are fearlessly preaching the gospel. But then he calls out the motives of many of them there in verses 15 and 17. He says they're preaching from envy, rivalry, and selfish ambition. They were jealous of Paul's ministry and does that, this happens so much, it's embarrassing. But why is it that people who are preaching the same gospel about Jesus Christ on the same team, supposedly giving all the glory to God, why are they envious of each other? See, this is happens when we compare ourselves to other people, when there should be no room for envy. But why do we do that? I am notorious for this. And I'll tell you why. Because I struggle with a false identity. Every Christian struggles with a false identity. Every uh, unbeliever lives out a false identity. But we have this part of us that if people start picking at it, we get really scared. Because it's who we are. If you were the smart kid and all of a sudden another kid outsmarting you, you may feel threatened by that. If you were the good-looking, pretty one, but somebody good-looking or prettier comes in, you may feel threatened by that. That's because there's something that you've taken and you've turned it into an ultimate thing. For these preachers, it seems like their ultimate thing was their ministry. It's ironic how ministry itself can become an idol. My kids are the most athletic, the best kids, the smart kids, but the, somebody else's kids are better. I've, I've heard the scariest moment for some musicians who want to go professional and go to New York City. They step off the bus In that big town, they hear someone playing the violin, standing on the corner, and realize that person's better than they are, and they're crushed. So number one, don't compare yourself to other people. Don't compare yourself to other people. It's something I always have to work at. Nothing good's going to come out of it. You're going to feel either puffed up and better than somebody else, or you're going to feel loathsome. They're better than me. Who am I? God decides these roles. and You start questioning God when you compare yourself and try to figure out, well, why don't I measure up to them? My wife is a counselor, and when she was practicing full-time, she counseled people all week long who were riddled with anxiety because they were comparing themselves to other people all the time. Other families, other kids. I'll tell you how this often comes to fruition in my own life. This is what I do. I'll hear some preacher or I'll read some book, and then I will. If I'm really impressed by it, this is what I do. I will run to the internet, and I want to find out. Well, how old were they when they wrote that? <laughs> how old were they? And they better be older than me, especially if it was something profound that I wouldn't have thought of in a million years. Otherwise, who am I? See, if they're older than me, then I've got room to improve. It's okay. I'll get there. I'm just not there yet. But, man, if they're younger, oof, now I've got to cope with this. See, that's the problem with comparison. And God has gifted everybody differently, and, and we don't need... Any more Chad Cowens in the world, that's for sure. But we also don't need any more David Jeremiah's or Charles Stanley's or Chuck Swindoll's or J.D. Greer's. The first time I walked into the auditorium at Dallas Seminary to hear Charles Swindoll speak, I was sitting in class with a fine, fine Bible teacher named Howard Hendricks. And he knew that we were about to walk into that auditorium and we were all going to be mesmerized by the way that man could get behind a pulpit and talk. And he said, now you all are going to hear him, and you're all going to think you can do what he does. And he said, well, you can't. He went on to say, there's only one Charles Swindoll. But then he said this. He said, but there's also only one of you. And the world needs you. They don't need another Charles Swindoll. They don't need another Chad Cowan, that's for sure. The world needs you. And you are the only you there is. So instead of comparing, celebrate others' gifts. Man, especially if they're other believers. I mean, we're on the same team here. But then if they are believers, you know, you can show your humility by celebrating. Man, you did such a good job on that fill-in-the-blank, that presentation, uh, that job you did, that Way you talk to that person. Man, you're doing such a good job in parenting. Celebrate them. Be thankful they're on the team. You know, I've I've never been asked to sing a solo since I've been here at First Baptist. (laughs) Sam keeps telling me I'm just too good. (laughs) But thank goodness we've got the singers and musicians, and celebrate those that the Bible says are just indispensable. There's a second temptation I want to talk about. We find it in verses 1 through 4 of Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2, 1 through 4. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. So this is our, our next barrier to joy. This is another thing that Satan is uh, trying to steal from us, a way he's trying to steal our joy from us. And let's go through this passage. Paul lists four conditions which he's assuming the Philippians will affirm. In verse 27 of the previous chapter, he says, live in a manner worthy of the gospel. He said, this is what you profess to believe, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Therefore, live in a worthy manner according to that. Then in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, since you are worthy of the gospel. Then he continues and forms these conditions. And you can tell he's gearing these Philippians up for something. He's leading up to something. He lays out these objective spiritual realities. He says, therefore, it is, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort provided by love, any fellowship in the Spirit, any affection or mercy, and he expects the answer to be yes to all of those conditions. In other words, he's saying, has Christ encouraged you? Has love comforted you? Is there fellowship in the Spirit? Yes, yes, yes. Okay, then he moves to verse 2. Well, if your answers are true to all that, He gives them this command. He says, make my joy complete. Fill it to the brim, literally. He's not saying he doesn't have joy. He's saying it's not complete. In other words, my joy isn't dependent on you all. Let me be clear. But he's saying there's a measure of joy to be had here. I'm hearing an echo of myself somewhere out there, I think. Uh, So he says this. And he provides them the means by which they could make his joy complete. Now, now, this church in Philippi had issues. Now, imagine that. They had issues. There were divisions among them. They had a problem with strife and self interest and pride. This is, if Paul is saying this is affecting your joy and community. And even though he's a prisoner here, he, you notice he never says, Make my joy complete my, by busting me out of this place, does he? Make my joy complete by getting me out of this dank prison. He never says that. He's not concerned about his circumstances. It's more about their relationship. He goes on, verse 2 to say, by being like-minded. Being like-minded. That, now, does that mean you've got to share the same opinions on everything? Good luck with that. No. It's not realistic. But it's more about these relationships. And and it means we should have the same motivations. And here we have this idea of moving along together in harmony towards a common goal. That's what he's saying. That we should be moving along together with the same motivation towards a a, a common goal. Even though, you know what, I could pull this auditorium and I guarantee you we have a hundred different opinions on every subject. No two of us agree on everything. It's just not possible. But there are some things we have to agree on, isn't there? Good marriages, interestingly, will have this quality. It's not that there's not conflict. It's not that there's not strife. But two people are moving together in the same direction, working towards a common goal. And Paul is talking about this, making his joy complete. And he says in verse 2, having the same love. Uh, speaking to the love that the Philippians should be expressing to one another. It should be a love they show each other, a characterizing kind of love. I've seen this here. I've seen this in this church. I've seen it towards me as me and my family have transitioned here. I've seen you show that to each other as, as someone we love, uh, is, is lost a loved one and is grieving. I've seen it. Be united in one spirit. That's about united in the face of persecution and heresy as we are enduring persecution together as false teachings come up and we all recognize that we're on the same page that's pressure from outside the walls of the church when our views don't match the views of the culture that's when the persecution happens that's when we stand united Having one purpose, and that purpose is to be to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. And then verses three and four: instead of being motivated by selfish ambition or vanity, in humility treat one another as more important than yourself. Not just don't be interested just about your own stuff, but the interests of others. So to Paul, unity and community are essential. They're essential to joy, and and the and the people of this church. This is. Again, one of the keys to joy. So this is the next temptation. Don't cause division in the body of Christ. I'll never forget. I had, a, I had an argument with one of the older, wiser pastors at my last church. And I, yeah, I, I had to do a lot of apologizing. And he, he was totally gracious in this. He said, Chad, just remember, Satan is always trying to get in the door. He's always trying to get in the door, always trying to divide, always trying to get us to gossip about each other, always trying to get us to be nasty with each other over things that have nothing to do with the gospel. And he can be very, very effective at it. But relationships are so key, so important And if you believe that Christ is in control of all things, does that mean that you have to be in control of all things? Are there times, if you're going to be honest, that you'd rather be right than in relationships? And being in relationships, again, is so important. I was reading a study uh, that came out from Harvard University. It was called the Grant Study. They wanted to figure out what is it that really gives people happiness over time. This was not a, a Christian study per se. But they had these... These Harvard students that they monitored over a lifetime, over a period of 72 years, they started when these young men were uh, freshmen at Harvard, and, and they, they looked at a number of different factors. A lot, This was a longitudinal study. A number of different factors, their relationships, if they work out, did they have a part in religion, um, did they eat well, what were their recreational activities like, did they, did they smoke, did they drink, What everything over a long course of time. Education levels. There was a psychiatrist named George Volant that headed up towards the end. And in 2008, somebody said, well, what was the the result after studying these 268 men for 72 years? What did you find out? He had a very interesting conclusion. He said, the only thing that really matters in life are your relationships to other people. I love it when science backs up what the Bible's already told us. Yeah, that's exactly what Paul was saying. God made us for these relationships, and they're not easy. Some of you have been hurt desperately by somebody, and you've got a fear of people because you know what they can do. That's true from probably the youngest to the oldest. And if that's true for you, listen to me right now. There are people in this church that will love you. You're going to have to seek them out. But they're here, and they'll care for you. So instead of causing division, contend for unity. Be the one who doesn't affirm the gossiper. That's, that takes courage. Refuse to give in to the gossip and the backbiting. That, by the way, takes us to our next set of verses. We find this next joy killer in uh, chapter 2, 14 through 17. Contend for unity. Then look at these verses, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Now look at verse 14 again. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. What? There's got to be some mistake in the Greek or the translation or something here. No. It's not a misprint. doesn't say maybe in some things or in a few things. It says all things without grumbling or disputing. Well, they didn't know what these winners were like in Wyoming. They didn't know what kind of leadership we were going to have to contend with in the United States. No. Trust me, the leadership in Paul's day was much, much worse. He's saying this is a prisoner for the gospel. Well, they don't know the boss I have, or the parents I have, or the teachers I have, or the neighbors, or the spouse, or my car, or my computer. There's no exceptions. It's very straightforward. Don't grumble and complain. Don't grumble and complain. And this has to do, as he would say uh, earlier in this chapter, working out your salvation or the, work, the outworking of salvation in your life is the mark of the Christian. And Paul's made these warnings to churches before. In 1 Corinthians 10.10, 10, he said, don't grumble. If you look back in the Old Testament, Numbers 14, when the Israelites were complaining against God and Moses for bringing them out of their current conditions of Egypt, and, and God would punish them for this. God's not going to put up with it. And he knows even better than we do every single challenge and difficulty that we're facing right now. As a family, as a community, as a country, he knows. It's nothing new under the sun. Romans 8 is true that he's working all all things out for the good of those who love him. Instead, we're told in verse uh, 15, shine as lights in the world. Shine, look at the words before that. In a crooked and twisted generation, we're called to shine like these lights. That means we should know that non-Christians are not attracted to strife and contention among so-called Christians who are supposed to love each other. Instead, are known for whining and complaining and splitting and dividing. And Paul's saying, don't make us look that way. And when we have this this complaining attitude, it, it tears things apart. It's when your mouth is speaking out of a bad attitude. And my mouth is speaking out of a bad attitude. So instead of doing this, this is going to sound harsh. I'm telling you this applies to me more than anybody else in the congregation. Okay? What do you do instead of that? Shut up and shine. Okay? My mom used to say, if you can't say something nice, don't say it. Non-Christians were being attracted to God because of this not being attracted. I'm sorry. Watch the social media posts. Watch what you say to others. So we celebrate others' gifts. We contend for unity. We shut up and shine. We find the fourth here, the fourth way of having our joy stolen. In verses 6 through 8 of chapter 4. Paul can't make it any more clear. Don't be anxious. He said, don't be anxious. Stop it. And I wish it was that easy. But if you want to not be anxious, there's some choices that you're going to have to make according to this passage. Notice that the Lord leaves no open doors here. No opportunities to say, uh, don't worry about anything except that. He said, no, nothing's worth worrying about. It's when we have to deal with God sized problems with human limitations. And so, what do we choose instead of worrying? How do we deal with God sized problems? Look at verse six. Our attention is turned to prayer. Instead, in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. It's choosing to pray instead of getting anxious. In what circumstances? In every circumstance. And then he presents a series of words to deal with. The first is prayer. Then he, he said in the previous verse that God is near. And now Paul knew the words of Christ himself. On the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus said, Don't worry. You won't add a single day to your life. So we have these words, nothing and everything in contrast with each other. In everything, in all the details... Every circumstance of life limited, God is interested in it. And he says, handle it with prayer. Speak directly to me about this. Talk to me. I hope we never take for granted the privilege we have in speaking directly to God about everything. Whatever's on your mind, he's the one to speak about. He's the only one that has the power to probably do something about it. So we call him Father. The God of the universe is our Father. He's adopted us if we've trusted Christ as his sons and daughters. And then we petition God. That's that word supplication from supply. What are the desires of your heart? Talk to him about it. What do you most want freedom from? What do you want to feel? Tell him. What is your deepest temptation in terms of anxiety? God, help me be a good dad, mother, father, Husband, wife, whatever it may be, teacher, whatever it is, take it to God. And then how do we do these things? It says with thanksgiving. And here's where I think it becomes very counterintuitive. It doesn't make sense in everything, all circumstances, including that very thing that seems to be the source of your anxiety. Pray with thanksgiving. And this is when we by faith say, God, you know what you're doing and I don't. You know what you're doing. I don't understand why I'm in this circumstance. I don't understand why I'm waiting this out. You do. So we're to be prayerful, thankful, and then we must also be thoughtful. Verse 8. Finally, brothers, listen to the list. True, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise. This is what you are to occupy your mind with. You've got to choose to be thinking about the right things. We have to think in a different way. And this all speaks to what I'm allowing inside my head. Is it true? Tim Keller, um, he had a way of addressing this way of thinking. He had a way of addressing what modern coping strategies were, and he challenged them. He wrote this about dealing with anxiety. He said, I've always been impressed by the contrast between Contemporary strategies for coping with stress and Paul's counsel for how to get inner peace. Modern approaches tell you to take time off, get a better work leisure balance, block negative and guilty thoughts, to exercise and learn relaxation techniques. He said modern books never tell stressed people to think about the big questions of life where are we from, where are we going. What is the meaning of life? That's the difference between the Christian way of thinking and the secular way of thinking. We go after the big questions of life. And Paul says, whatever is true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable, think about those things. Paul is saying, think. Think. God made the world and we turn from him. But he's coming back to save it at infinite cost to himself. He says, someday he will put everything right and we will live with him forever. If you really understood and believed that, nothing could get you down for long. So think. If you're discouraged, think about and take hold of Christian doctrine until it puts some health and peace into you. Instead of having that person that did that horrible thing to you on your mind all the time, start thinking about what it was Christ willingly went through to save you from your sin. Picture him on the cross Picture him as the scriptures describe him unfairly, did nothing wrong, and yet he's being tortured to death. That's not fair. That he did that for you and I? That's what's pure and lovely. It's, it's solid, pure Christian doctrine. He said, occupy your mind with that. There are a million sinners out there that are going to do and say things to you that you cannot control. Focus on Christ. Don't occupy your mind with all of this other stuff. Instead, be thankful, prayerful, and thoughtful. Be thankful, prayerful, and thoughtful. So putting all this uh, this together, how do we overcome these satanic psychological operations? Resist his attacks, celebrate others' gifts, contend for unity, shut up and shine, and be thankful, prayerful, and thoughtful. Practice these things. Let's pray together. And Lord, we thank you so much for your grace. We thank you so much, Lord Jesus, that we can trust you. And Lord, I pray that our mind would go to the beautiful things. Lord, help us to not focus on the traumas. The words. God, when we secretly want revenge, when we're tempted to go and gossip, when we're tempted to rage against our brothers and sisters in Christ, to attack leadership, Lord, I pray that we would start praying that we would go to you. God, I pray that we would know joy as you would have us to know joy and not be overwhelmed by the temptations of this world. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Uh, if you're in need of prayer this morning, I would be happy to pray with you. Just make your way up to the front and we can pray together. Otherwise, have a wonderful day. And we'll see you soon. Uh, one more thing before you leave. If you're headed to the Romans class uh, in the youth room, if you would just wait about five more minutes, they need until about 1015 to get finished up in there. So you're welcome to wait in here uh, till about 10.15 and then head to the youth room. Have a wonderful day. We'll see you soon.